It's great to be here. Thank you so much, David and the, the Grays. I, I think it's just so cool that uh, you use your talents and your time to worship God and then to lead us in that worship. So thank you so much uh, for preparing us this morning. And uh, also, what's really cool is what's happening with missions these days. Um, so I hope you took a look at the link this morning, but um, or sometime this week. Uh, we have a, a story about Bolivia. I met. Uh, Peru. I had the opportunity to talk with uh, our missionaries there, and it's just amazing what God is doing in the jungles of Peru, out in the middle of nowhere, uh, really raising up uh, some new pastors there. It's just really encouraging to hear about that, and so please read about that. There's prayer uh, uh, points for you to pray through uh, this week, and I pray that, or really ask you to do that. They need our prayers. And then also there would be some pictures just to kind of orient yourself with what's going on in, in Peru uh, going on uh, after services. And I also want to mention that we also had the opportunity uh, just at a last minute, uh, Marcio from FH in Bolivia came by here in Albuquerque. So a few of us were able to get with him on uh, Monday night and just to hear what God is doing with water, with the water projects there that we've helped fund some of. It's just amazing what God is doing there, and we're going to be bringing some of that information to you very soon as well. So please be watching for that. And the reason I'm at to know what you're helping to do, uh, but also to be praying about what's going on, because it, it, God is really bringing some fruit there. So please uh, keep that in, in your, your uh, prayers and uh, uh, just in, in the front of your mind. So this morning, I want to... Um, uh, well, we're going to take a little break from Philippians, uh, and uh, you probably have forgotten by now, but uh, I had started a series on the life of Abraham, and so that's where I want to pick up this morning, and, uh, and you might ask, well, why Abraham? Why, why study Abraham in particular? And I uh, just really like uh, what it says here in Hebrews chapter 11. It's about the giants of faith, right? And Abraham's one of them, and why in particular uh, am I drawn to Abraham? By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to the place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in the foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob and fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundation, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, even Sarah herself received uh, ability to co conceive even beyond the proper time of life since she considered him faithful who had promised. So why Abraham? Well, what do we see in this, the, these few verses, these five verses? What strikes you? Two words, right? Promise and um, um, faith. We see faith three times. We see promise three times in these five verses plus also refers to a specific promise, okay? So they're central to this. Why is faith and promise so important and so important to Abraham? Well, it tells us right here in verse 6, just before. And without faith, it is impossible to please him, God, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. So in other words, faith and rewarding or promise are connected to each other. And that's what we see about Abraham, that he was living by faith with his feet securely planted in God's promises. And so that's what made him who he is. And I think we can learn from that today. God, uh, Abraham's living by faith and his trusting and, and accepting those promises and living by those promises. In fact, there are four lessons that I hope you can take away today, four applications uh, from our study of uh, Abram. And he hasn't made it to Abraham yet, so it's just Abram. Uh, the first of these four uh, applications is choosing your neighbors. In other words, choosing to be associated with the promise, acting on that promise. And then when we do uh, connect ourselves with the promise, when we act on that promise, we're going to end up praising God, worshiping God. And then finally, as we go through all of this, it kind of completes the cycle and it draws faith and uh, it draws trust in that promise and closes the loop. And so this is a process that we go through over and over again. And so um, there's the lesson. Let's, let's pray before we get started. Dear Lord, 
thank you so much for this morning, Lord. We thank you for this time of worship, Lord. Uh, you indeed uh, deserve our worship, Lord. We are so blessed to be here, Lord. Uh, Lord, we are thankful for the promises that you have made us, Lord, and we pray that you will help us this morning to be more like Abraham and live by those promises, Lord, and uh, 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 to be clear to all those around us that we are living because of you and living for you, Lord. Uh, be with us this morning. Open these passages up, Lord, and uh, help us, uh, Lord, to uh, learn what we can from your scripture, Lord. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. All right. So if you would start turning to uh, Genesis chapter 14, we'll be there this morning. And, but before we jump into the scripture, I want to kind of recap, catch you up to where we're at. And so remember in uh, chapter 12 of Genesis, that's where God comes to Abraham. He's living in the land of Ur, and uh, God comes to him with a proposition. He says, you know, if you will go to this land that I will show you, this promised land, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless the whole world through you. And so Abraham takes him up on that. He goes on this journey uh, to the promised land. Now, just like life, right? You know, God has a big promise, a big plan for us, but life isn't always easy, right? And we see that with Abraham. And already he's, he's uh, posed with some of these challenges already in his life. And so we've gone through a few of them. The first one, of course, is just the travel. He goes uh, you know, God tells him to go, but he doesn't tell him where he's going. And so he, he makes his trip just totally trusting in God. He arrives in the land, and then he gets there. He kind of settles in for a little bit, and then this big drought hits, right, this extreme drought. And he leaves uh, the promised land. He goes down into uh, Egypt, runs into all kinds of problems down there. His wife's beautiful. Pharaoh wants to take him take her. Uh, he lies about who she is, that he's his sister, not his wife, and gets into all kinds of problems, right? And then uh, God bails him out and uh, helps him move on to uh, back to the land of Canaan, back to the promised land. And then the next challenge, we see that uh, he and uh, his nephew that came with him, Lot, they're together, but they've grown. Their herds have gotten so big, they've gotten so rich that the land can't support them anymore, so they have to part ways. And Abram gives Lot the choice of where he wants to live, and Lot chooses the very best land for himself, right? So challenge after challenge, and this chapter 14 is no different. Another challenge that we're going to see Abraham facing, or Abram facing. Now what's important, though, to note that with all of these challenges is interspersed God's promise to Abraham. As I mentioned, right out, right from the very beginning in chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, we see God making the initial promise to Abraham. If he will go, this is what I'm going to do for you, right? And then once he gets to the promised land, uh, 12, verse 7, he then reiterates to him the promise that he had made to him after making this hard journey. And then finally, after Lot choosing the better land, right, God comes back again and reiterates his promise to, to uh, Abraham or Abram. And so you see this interconnection between, you know, uh, Abram walking in faith and this uh, reminding of the promise, these challenges, promise, challenges, promise, right, that uh, God keeps reiterating to him. Okay, so now let's pick up this next challenge, uh, starting in chapter 14, verse 1. <clears throat> And it came about in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Shedolamor, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, that they made war with Bera, king of Sodom, and Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adama, and Shimabur, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. These, all these came as allies to the valley of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Shadolamor, but the thirteenth they had rebelled. And in the fourteenth year, Shadolamor and the kings that were with him came and defeated the Raphim in Asherah, Karamim, and the Zuzim in Ham, and the Emim in Sheva, Kirathim, and the Horites in Mount Seir as far as El Paran, which is by the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to Emishpah, 
which is Kadesh, and conquered all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who lived in Hazazon Tamar. And the king of Sodom, and the king of Gomorrah, and the king of Adama, and the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zor, came out, and they arrayed in battle against them in the valley of Siddim, against Shadolamor, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, and Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddim was full of tar pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fell, fell, fled, and they fell into them. But those who survived fled to the hill country. Then they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all the food supply and departed. And they also took Lot, Abram's nephew, and the possessions and departed, for he was living in Sodom. Whew, I got all those names right, right? <laughs> I can just imagine some real Hebrew speaker going, oh, geez, that Texas accent and all these names, please. But actually, the names are quite important, as we're going to get uh, to in a minute. But what's the big picture of what's going on here? Well, the first thing is, is that we have these kings, these, these five kings, that they decide to rebel against King Shadolamur. Uh, they decide not to pay tribute to him anymore. And all these guys, they're living in the area around the Dead Sea. And so they're, you might remember the Dead Sea and the Mediterranean, and then they're living along this western edge of uh, the Dead Sea. Then Chateau uh, he goes out and he gets three of his buddies. And I'm kind of guessing the kings in the Dead Sea weren't expecting this. So he uh, increases his army, right? And Chateau and all these other kings, they're up from the far northeastern area. So places like what would become Babylon and Syria and the Hittites, which are in Turkey. So they're coming down and invading and uh, while they're on their way uh, to put down this insurrection, they, they also wreak all kinds of havoc with all these other kings and stuff as well, right? Uh, plunder six other kings. And so in the big scheme of things, none of this would matter except for the fact that what? They carried Lot off in captivity, right? And that's what brings us into this story and what brings Abram into this uh, story. And so... That is the big point of, of this warring is, is that the tension that it, that it creates, the fact that Lot is carried off in captivity, what is Abram going to do about it? So, you know, it really, was it Lot's fault that he got carried off in, in, in captivity? You know, I mean, he wasn't part of the warring or whatever, you know, but he was guilty by association, right? He was in the wrong place at the wrong time there uh, because... Actually, this all falls back on, on the story we just talked about, the fact that Lot was separating himself from Abram, right? Because they had uh, gotten so rich, they had uh, had so much property, their herds had gotten so big that the land couldn't support them anymore. So they needed to separate. And although it was Abram's choice, he was the senior, he was the man of promise, he still gave Lot the choice of which land he would take. All this is in chapter 13. And what did Lot choose? He chose the choicest land, right? The well-watered land like the garden of the Lord. That's what he took for himself. But when he made that decision, he also knew full well what that would mean. And that is that the, the land that he was going to go settle in was exceedingly evil. In fact, in verse uh, 12 of chapter 13, exceedingly evil and sinners against the Lord. So he knew this was the land he was choosing. And what did Lot then end up doing? In uh, chapter 13, verse 13, it notes that Lot pitched his tent near Sodom. Near Sodom. Where does it say in chapter uh, 14, verse 12 that Lot is? Lot is living in Sodom. So not, not only, I meant he, he could have, you know, stayed off to the edge, but no, he, he got right there next to Sodom, and then over time, he kind of crept into Sodom, and so he's, he's part of these people. And so the problem is that Lot, in separating from Abram, he separated himself from the promise. And I mean, there are different ways to separate, right? I mean, you could separate physically, but still stay connected. But by Lot choosing Sodom, this wicked people, and then really becoming part of that people, that was really separating himself because Abram was always staying separate as God commanded him to stay separate from the peoples of Canaan. Yet he uh, 
uh, Lot became connected with these people and so separated himself. And this reminds me a bit, I don't know, do you all remember the, the movie Night and Day? It was with uh, Tom Cruise and Cameron Diaz. It's kind of a shoot 'em up uh, show. And basically, you know, there's some bad FBI agents and uh, Tom Cruise is running from them. But anyway, they're, they're together here for a moment. And Cameron Diaz has to make a decision whether she follows Tom Cruise or, or these FBI agents. But the bottom line is, is that, you know, Tom Cruise says, with me or without me? With me or without me? And that's really kind of what we have here, right? Lot made the choice. With Abram, without Abram. With Abram, the promise, or without him. And that was his choice. And we'll see that, well, it, it was a bad choice, obviously. So God makes uh, this point of separation uh, from the promise here, this separating between Lot and Abram, Abram the man of promise, but he also kind of does a, a, a more subtle way of showing this separation from the promise. And that is uh, what, what was kind of one of the most obvious things about this little section of scripture I just read. It's all the names, right? All these complicated names. And not only once, I had to repeat all of them twice, right? So there's something there about those names, right? Now, all the peoples that they are associated with, you know, the Hittites and Amorites, Amalekites, all that, we know, you know, they've been around, they're all throughout the Bible. We know that where they are and all that kind of stuff. But what we don't, what we're not able to trace are the actual names of these kings. They appear nowhere else in the Bible nowhere else in historical accounts and that's really unusual for the bible usually you know even though this is pretty ancient right times usually we're still able to trace many at least a few of them here none of these 11 kings can we trace back in any kind of historical existence so i think god's trying to tell us something and and what he's trying to tell us the message is that the kings these kingdoms that live outside of God's promise, they're, they're not going to be remembered. They're, they're nothing. They're not important. If you're not connected to the promise, your life has no real meaning. And I think God's trying to get that across to us. With him, without him. With him, without him, right? Also, something else that kind of... Uh, made me scratch my head as I, I'm thinking about here. In the, it's the geography, right? And so we got these kings all up here in the far northeast, right? And they decide that, you know, we're going to put down this insurrection. And so they come marching down because they're off to the east. They're coming marching down along the eastern side of the Jordan and uh, the, the Dead Sea, right? And all they're coming down here and they're wreaking all kinds of havoc with all these other kings, right? Then they come down around the bottom of the Dead Sea and back up. And all this time, they're fighting people. Anyone they can, they're plundering and, you know, causing all kinds of havoc. And then they get to the valley, right, right along, and they start back up north. And now that's when they engage with these five kings that have, have uh, uh, you know, rebelled against them, right? Well, where's Abram in all of this, right? Where's he living? You know, how is he separate from all of this going on? Well, so at this time, he's near what would be Hebron, and which is, if you think about the Dead Sea, the Mediterranean, and there's, you know, this strip of land right there in between. There's this little bit of a valley, and then you go up kind of in mountains up there. Not high mountains, but, I mean, because you're below sea level here anyway, so you got to go up. Uh, he's perched just right here, right here on the top of these hills along the western side of the valley, right? He's not that far away. I mean, he's just right there. And I mean, he would be a prize, right? I mean, all these big herds, nobody's really protecting him. He'd be easy pickings for all of these kings, right? Or that's the way I would think anyway. But apparently they didn't. Why wasn't Abram attacked? With him, without him, right? With him, without him. God's taking care of him. So, Lot's mistake, what was it? He was separated himself from the promise. I mean, he really separated himself by associating with Sodom, right? So, 
Likewise, we too need to stay connected to the promise. And it's, it's really pretty cool here, right? Because Abram, Abraham, he's the man of promise. And actually, Abraham is a foreshadow of the greater Jesus, right? So who's the promise that we need to stay connected to? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the promise for us today. He's the one we need to stay connected to. But and, and why wouldn't we? Why wouldn't we connect? Why wouldn't we stay associated with that promise, the promise of Jesus Christ? Everything is in him. Why wouldn't we stay connected? Why wouldn't we stay associated? Well, probably the same way that what happened a lot, right? Greener pastures. He got enticed away. Things look really good. Looks really fun living down there or maybe more insidious wow, it's, it's a lot more comfortable that way. I don't have to work as hard if I go and live down there in that valley, right, where everything's green and, and nice, right? With him, without him. With him, without him. So what's next? What happens next? Let's read on. Hopefully not so many names. Then a fugitive came and told Abram, the Hebrew, now he was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol, the brother of Anar, and these were allies with Abram. And when Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he led out his trained men, born in the house, 318, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, and he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them as far as Hoboth, which is north of Damascus. And he brought back all the goods. He also brought back his relative Lot with his possessions and also the women and the people. All right. So uh, what happens? Well, the first thing is that uh, we see Abram learning about what has happened, right? So uh, it's interesting that uh, he is warned by this fugitive or enlightened by this fugitive. And Apparently, he was someone that was caught up in the battle, but somehow survived and escaped. And then what did he do? He made his way to Abram. Why? Why Abram? Of all the places he could go, and it doesn't seem to be a mistake at all, right? It seems that he intentionally went to Abram. So he went to Abram. And so that makes me think that Abram kind of had a name already, that he was known he was, I mean, there was something about Abram that caused this fugitive to go to him, knowing that if somebody could do something, it would be Abram. It's also interesting here that uh, this is the first time that Abram is called by the name of a Hebrew, the first time we see this term Hebrew ever used in the Bible. And what's kind of interesting is that I think it's making a point, basically the term Hebrew throughout the Old Testament when it's used is used in a way that helps us or that helps underscore the fact that God's people are separate from other people, right? That they're called out by God. So there's this separation between God's people and other people, right? <clears throat> and so in the same way, it's highlighting Abram to be separate, right? And which Lot was not. And in fact, again, it kind of underscores this whole deal with names, right? The fact that, uh, you know, we remember Abram's name. People worldwide know Abram even today. Yet we, can't, we don't know any of these other 11 kings, those who were separate from the promise. The man of promise is known, all these other kings unknown. The other interesting thing just uh, that is important to note here is that it also notes that Abram is living by Hebron or near Hebron and this term living is a term for a tent encampment so again even though he's he's here to live he's still living as an alien he's still living as a nomad and so he has no land of his own right he, he he's just living in the land and so Again, that kind of brings us to probably the, the reason that he has this alliance, right, with these Amorites, right? I mean, he's so big, he can't just kind of go under the radar anymore. People know that he's in their land. They're eating, you know, his, his cows and sheep are eating their, their, their grass. So he has to come up with an alliance 
uh, with these other kings. And, you know, why would they allow him to be there? Well, they know there's something about this Abram. They know somebody is blessing this guy, Abram, and they want to be part of that. And so we can see that they're willing to make uh, uh, concessions for Abram to be in their land. In fact, they want an alliance with Abram. Again, they know something is, there's something important about this Abram. And so usually these kinds of agreements require some kind of, you know, agreement that if, you know, someone starts warring against you, you, you come help out. And even the Amorites in this case have reason to go in and be part of helping uh, Abram because not only did they take Lot, but they were also fighting against a bunch of the Amorites before we, we read that. So they were all kind of in this together. These, these kings had wreaked havoc on both families. So uh, what happens next? Abram, he, he doesn't he hesitate, right? He musters his men, and he's ready to go after uh, these marauding kings, right? And it's interesting that it comes up, tells us exactly how many men, 318, that Abram musters from his own family, if you will, not family, but his herdsmen and, and, and whatnot that were born to him. And so now we are expecting that, you know, his, his force is larger than that, right? Because he's, he's, these Amorites are going to come along with him, these three brothers and their, you know, clans or whatever. We don't know how many people. But still, I think the point, the 318 still underscores that uh, Abram is severely outnumbered, outtrained, and outweaponed. These are not army men. These are just farmers, I met uh, herdsmen, right, that they're pulling together. So they're way outnumbered. And so, I mean, what is Abram thinking? That I mean, there's just no way. These guys have already destroyed 11 other kings, 11 other uh, armies, right, on their way around. I mean, you were lucky that they didn't bother you. And what? You think you're going to go after them, right? And so what is he thinking? Well, it's the only thing is he's acting on God's promise, right? He is standing on God's promises. Specifically, we see in chapter 12, verse 3, it says, I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. So Abram, he's stepping out on faith, convinced he has the full weight of God behind him in this. And unlike his last time in, in Egypt where he cowered to Pharaoh, Abram is standing on the promise. He is uh, acting on God's promise. And so he takes off, and not only is he, you know, moving quickly on this, but he is not going to be deterred. He's not going to give up. We see he travels 150 miles to catch up with these guys near Dan, right, which is on the far, far north or an end of what eventually would become Israel, right? And so that's where he catches up with him. And the other interesting and I think important thing to see here is that uh, while this battle totally belongs to God, and I know Abram would realize that, you know, if I'm going to defeat, defeat these guys, it's only by the promise of God. God is the one who will give these people into my hand. But he still isn't cavalier about the battle. He, he uses some tactics here to try and improve his chances. Or, or maybe, you know, God told him this is what to do. I don't know. It doesn't tell us that. But the, the, the bottom line is he uses surprise. He uses uh, nightfall, and he uses misdirection to do his attack. And, of course, because of the hand of God in all of this, he is uh, successful. He routes the enemies. He chases them 50 miles beyond Dan, which, again, are the future borders of, of Israel, the promised land. So I don't think that's insignificant that he's forcing these people out of his promised land. And so now we see what? Abram finally returning home after this great battle. And it's also kind of interesting, the, the, the order of list that, you know, it lists possessions first, right? And then Lot, <laughs> and then all the women, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know. Interesting that it's listed in that order that of, of what he's bringing back. But the bottom point here, right, is what? That Abram is acting on God's promise. He went and rescued uh, Lot, his nephew, without even thinking about it, without hesitation. He, and I want you to understand, these are 
overwhelming odds. I mean, these guys had destroyed 11 other kings without any trouble. And now Abram and his little band of, of, far, or, uh, of herdsmen go and overtake him. This is significant, the fact that he would be willing to step out that way. And so the question is, is are we acting on the promises that we have today? Well, I guess the first thing is if we're not connected to the promise, we can't act on the promise, right? And so, again, remembering that Jesus is the greater Abraham, right? Uh, that, you know, we see Abraham here being the rescuer, right? He goes and rescues his, his uh, or Abraham, the man of promise. He's going and rescuing his, his uh, nephew, Lot, from physical captivity, right? And in some sense, that's a shadow, right? A foreshadowing of today. But with us foreshadowing, uh, instead of Abraham being the man of promise, of course, the seed that would come from him, Jesus Christ, he's the foreshadow of the real Jesus Christ, the real promise, the real promise that we connect with today. And just like with Abraham, uh, Jesus Christ is rescuing us from slavery. From what kind of slavery? Slavery to sin. And because Jesus Christ, I bet, and that slavery to sin is death, right? It will result in death for each and every one of us if it's not for Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ came, died on the cross. He lived a perfect life, right? He didn't deserve death, yet he went to the cross and died for us, paying our price for sin that we should ever be connected, uh, that, that we are freed then from our slavery to sin if we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, if we connect ourselves to that promise, right? The, the promised one. So we have to be connected to the promise first, right? But also, then if we are connected, if we are connected, if we have accepted this promise, then are we acting on the promise? And, uh, you know, fortunately, I don't think God's necessarily always calling us out to overwhelming odds like with Abraham. But anytime we go up against sin, it's pretty overwhelming, right? I mean, regardless of the situation. But just like Abram, uh, God calls us, right? Just like he sent the, the uh, uh, oh, what do you call it? The, <laughs> uh, the fugitive. There it is. There's the word. He sent the fugitive, right? Specifically to Abram. God speaks to us. God comes. He communicates with us in different ways to let us know what he expects from us, what he's calling us to. And just like Abram, the Hebrew, right? He's calling us to be separate, to be separate from the world. We're in the world, but we're still separate. We look different. We live differently. And God is also calling us in the same way to rescue others from slavery to sin. We are to call them out from sin in their slavery to sin. Go and make disciples of the whole world, Matthew 28, 19, right? But I think it's important here, this uh, dawned on me, is that unfortunately, though, Abram and Lot didn't understand the real slavery in this story, right? And uh, again, back to the names, it's interesting that all the names of the kings that are stated in the, in, in the Dead Sea area all their names mean something sinful. Bera means to be evil. Bersha means to be wicked. Shinab, father is sin. And Shimabur, powerful or boastful name. All these names, I mean, that just speaks to what this region is all about. And we know what happens to Sodom and Gomorrah one day, right? So it's this, it, it's just total association with sin. The real slave uh, lot, real problem was his slavery to sin. It wasn't his physical slavery. And that's the sad part of this. Abram goes out and rescues him from physical slavery, right? But Lot goes right back to his slavery of sin and continues to separate himself from Abram. Let us not make the same mistake when we're trying to rescue others Make sure that we realize the real slavery is to sin and not to other things, whether it's drinking or gambling or whatever it may be. It's the important thing is the slavery to sin, and only Jesus Christ is the promise that we can go to there. All right, so we're finished with the battles and the warring and whatever. We're not done with the names yet. 
But what happens next? Then after his return from the defeat of Shadow Lamor and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet, uh, meet at the valley of Sheba, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now that he was a pre, now he was a priest of the God of God Most High, and he blessed him and said, "Blessed be Abram, of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand." And he gave him a tenth of all. All right, so. Um, in the preceding chapter, right, we saw this, this tension between two characters, right? Abram, the man of promise, and Lot, his nephew, right, who, was, who had separated himself from the promise. Now we kind of see this tension again between two different characters. We see these two characters coming out to meet Abram as he comes, uh, returns from his, his battling. And one is Melchizedek, one who is this priest of God most high, and then we see the king of Sodom. Uh, when I think we already have established what Sodom <clears throat> stands for. And uh, here we don't know if it's King Barab because we know he fell in a tar pit. But anyway, so, but it's some king now of, of Sodom, right? And so where are we? So basically I think uh, uh, Abram is just rolling into town. He's got all these people and possessions and everything that he's bringing back with him. And in fact, uh, this, uh, the King's Valley is, is right in the very northwestern portion of uh, the Dead Sea uh, between Jerusalem, basically, and, or where Jerusalem would be, and the Dead Sea. And so he's just coming down there, which would make sense. That's the way he would travel down. And so he's just right at the, the northern end of this, this land, right? And so uh, the King of Sodom and, Sodom and Melchizedek, this, this priest, come out to meet them. Right, and so uh, Melchizedek is the first to say anything, and so who is this guy? Who is this Melchizedek? Well, uh, all we know about him is what we read about him right here in Genesis, this, this very little bit, and that's all we know. Uh, I mean, he appears elsewhere, and we'll talk about that in a minute, but all we know about him is right here. Uh, what we do know is that his name means king of righteousness, we also know here it says he's priest of God most high, so he's a monotheist, right? But is that really our God, Yahweh God, the God of, of, of Abram? And it does, well, it is the same God as we will, it can easily tell from here. But, and how do we know that? Well, we, uh, for starters, we, we know that from the fact that uh, Abram in a minute will swear by this same name, God most high. So, they're connecting each other there. We also know that he shows up elsewhere in scripture that uh, confirms that uh, he is a, a priest of the real God, the God most high, right? So we know he's a priest. We also know that he is a priest and king, which is unusual. Uh, <clears throat> and we know that he is a king of what? Salem, and wh where's Salem? Well, actually Salem, was a Canaanite city until David came, years and years later, came and defeated the, the Canaanites, drove them out. He took over and renamed it Jerusalem, right? And so this is a king of eventually Jerusalem. And so uh, beyond that, we know nothing. Uh, we know nothing of his birth, death, genealogy, or anything, which is also important. So what does Melchizedek do? Well, we see he does a few things. He does exactly what anyone, I think, would do after seeing someone step out mightily on God's promises and to uh, do something great by the hand of God. What's the next thing you do? You always worship, right? That's the next thing you do. And that's exactly what they come out to do. Here he's rolling into town, first order of business, worship, right? And so what does this worship look like? Well... Uh, he brings provisions out to the warriors, right? He brings bread and wine to the victors uh, to celebrate with them. Uh, what else does he do? He offers a blessing to Abraham, or Abram, sorry. Uh, he also worships, worships God for who he is. So he's the God most high. He's also the possessor or creator of all the heavens and the earth, okay? So he's, 
He's praising God. And um, the other thing that we see going on here is that uh, Melchizedek's actions are legitimized by Abram's, right? Because Abram gives a tenth of all of his spoils to Melchizedek. So there's, again, something there. There's some, some sacrifice on uh, Abram's part to Melchizedek. So what do we take away from this worship? Uh, so just as we've seen that Jesus is a foreshadow of the greater Jesus, right? So he's kind of a foreshadow of Jesus. Melchizedek, in the same way, is a foreshadow of Jesus as priest and king. And so we know this. How? Well, I mentioned that we also see Melchizedek in other places in the Bible. Psalms 110. So it's a messianic psalm, a prophetic psalm about Jesus Christ. And uh, in there, in verse 4, it states that thou art a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. That's about all it says, so kind of leave you scratching your head. Well, what does that mean? Well, in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 6, this is repeated, this, this verse from Psalms. But then in chapter 7, the whole chapter really goes in depth about who this Melchizedek guy is, not so much who he is, but this, this connection. How is Jesus Christ, a, a, how does Melchizedek foreshadow Jesus Christ? And there's four different ways that uh, chapter 7 talks about. First is he's both priest and king. And so, and we know from Zechariah chapter 6 that Jesus will be both priest and king, and we see that, of course, throughout the New Testament, right, is Jesus playing that role. We also see Jesus Christ being called king of righteousness and the office is of, of the king of peace. So we see these same terms used of the two. Uh, we also note that both Jesus and Melchizedek, neither, of the line, neither uh, are of the line of Aaron. So they're not of the Levitical priesthood, right? And so only Melchizedek and only Jesus fit that, right? Because all the other Jews, all the other Israelites, uh, the king and uh, the priesthood and the kingship were always split, right? And the king and the priest were always of the Levitical priesthood or of Levite, Aaron, right? Whereas uh, at, at least we know Jesus Christ was uh, of, of Judah, right? So they were separate. So again, only Melchizedek fits this priest and king uh, role and not of Aaron. And then no record in Genesis of either the birth or death of Melchizedek helps, uh, it's symbolic of this idea of eternal uh, priesthood of Jesus Christ. So these are some ways that we see from Hebrew talking about how Melchizedek is this foreshadowing of Jesus Christ in his kingship and priesthood. So when we've uh, associated ourselves with this eternal promise of Jesus Christ, right, and we've acted in on these promises right so we've we've connected we've acted what's the next part the next part is always this mediated worship that we see going on here right when we act we're we're drawn into worship mediated worship right with jesus christ and it's just like we've seen here in fact it's exactly what we've practiced here this morning right we've celebrated our victory over sin sharing the communion of bread and wine right we're praising God for who he is. We, we sung all kinds of songs and prayed to him. Uh, we thank God for the victory that we have in Jesus Christ. Many of the songs that we sang this morning were about that. We also yield ourselves in sacrifice, whether it's through tithing or other things that we do, right, as part of our worship. And importantly, we receive Jesus's uh, blessing on our lives. He's the mediator with us, with God. So we see this kind of uh, seamless succession of events here, right? We see accepting that promise. We see then acting on that promise, and that then brings us to worship because of that promise, right? So you see how all that's going together? That's what we've seen Abraham living out in his life in, in, in this event and, and more broadly in his life beyond. All right, so one more piece here. So we've, we have, again, these two different characters. We've seen Melchizedek. Now we're going to see this tension with uh, the other side, if you will, and that is um, the king of Sodom. Now he speaks up. So they've worshiped, and now 
And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give the people to me and take the goods for yourself. And Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to the Lord, God most high, again, possessor of heaven and earth, again, kind of pointing back to Melchizedek uh, in, in his priesthood, that I will not take a thread or a sandal thong or anything that is yours, lest you say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing except what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me, Anair, Eshol, and Mamre. Let them take their share. <clears throat> okay, so really, uh, you know, and it, 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 it would be kind of, in, or it kind of easy to gloss over this. I mean, I, I kind of did when I first looked at this because, uh, you know, Abram, well, the question here is, is he going to fall into the same trap as Lot, basically? This, is he going to be seduced by the prestige and the honor that this wicked king, in effect, is offering uh, Abram? Is he going to fall into the same trap? And so, fortunately, Abram just is, you know, uh, is exiting, if you will, if you ever do, from worship, right? He's just been worshiping here with Melchizedek. So, Fortunately, he's very centered, and I, he sees immediately through uh, the plot. And, I, I, you know, it, it is kind of easy uh, to get caught up here, right? Because, I mean, this kind of offer seems to make sense. I mean, Abram here holds all the cards, right? He's got all the possessions. He went out. He did all this work. He doesn't owe anything to the king of Sodom. And the king here is saying, if you just give me the people back, I'd be happy. You keep all of this other stuff. That, that seems reasonable. In fact, He's actually asking for quite a lot, right? Because Abram really deserves everything. I mean, that would normally be the way it would go. Yet, uh, so on on the surface, you know, it seems kind of reasonable that he would give something, or that he would keep something, right? Because that would be normally the way it goes. But here, Abram really pushes back on him, right? It's like, no, not at all. I will have nothing to do with this, and. Um, why? Why? Why does it go this way? Well, he uh, tells us two things. There are two reasons that Abram wants nothing to do with the king of Sodom. The first is is that uh, he's already sworn to God that he would not take anything. And again, underscoring you know this idea of Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. You know, it's this same God that we just got through worshiping with Melchizedek. This is the God I have made a promise to. And I made this, this, this thread and sandal thong. The idea here is between something very thin and something very thick. So it's everything in between thick and thin. So it's a, a Jewish uh, uh, idiom. And so it means everything. So uh, he will take nothing at all. Everything belongs to the king of Sodom. And, but the other part of this, this reason is the perception, right? He says, I don't want you going around saying I made you, or that the king of Sodom could say you've made me rich. I want nothing to do with you. You owe me nothing, and you have nothing on me. So it's all about perception. This is about God. This was a victory by God, and anything that happens to me is because of God and has nothing to do with you. So it's all about perception. I wanted to make clear that it's all about God. And so, ultimately, Abram does the right thing. He doesn't profit. He still, though, allows the Amorites to profit, uh, you know, according uh, to uh, tradition there. Um, but what do we learn from Abram in his, his response? And I think the first very important thing that we can take home and we need to practice all the time is the fact that he learned from his mistakes, right? So just a couple of chapters before when Abram, uh, you know, was, was run out and uh, he should have never let, left the, the land of, of, of promise uh, because of the drought, yet he did. Uh, he failed to, you know, trust in God's promise. He went down to uh, Egypt and he lied about his wife, got himself into all kinds of trouble, got him, particularly with his wife, right, uh, who was taken by Pharaoh and Pharaoh got mad at him. And so really... You know, he learned a lesson there. He learned from that. Unlike when, you know, he made a really bad decision there, here he's standing strong. But the other thing is that, you know, the, there are still consequences. And I think possibly have, you know, helped accelerate what's happening here today. The fact that 
What happened when he left Egypt? The Pharaoh gave him all kinds of, 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 uh, of goods and possessions and highly enriched him, right? Because he just wanted him to get out because of all these plagues that God was, was bringing on the king uh, or on Pharaoh, right? And so they left very wealthy from Egypt. And it's that wealth, at, you know, at some point that ended up forcing this separation between Abram and Lot and then Lot's bad decision to go and, and be near Sodom. So consequences are playing out. But he learned from this set of, 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 of uh, uh, from his last time when he didn't uh, trust in God's promises. And so what did he learn as part of, you know, uh, from his past? Uh, he realized he could completely rely on God, right? So obviously that he was able to reach out and be so strong uh, that he didn't need to you know, rely on his own schemes of lying or, or leaving the land, but rather would trust God and, and follow God's plan for him. And the second is, again, the trusting isn't all, right? It's, it's perception, too. We want others to realize uh, that it is about God. And so he wants his trust to be evident to the people around him, his character, his accomplishments, his power, influence, wealth, is all, for all to realize that it is by God and from God and not anyone else. And so that that trust is, that, that trust is making me who I am, and it's from God that's, that is making me who I am. So here we've seen this. Basically, this closes the cycle, if you will, right? So we see connecting to the promise, who's Jesus Christ. We see acting out that promise in all kinds of different ways here, you know, against even, uh, you know, overwhelming odds. Then once you connect that promise with action, you're going to be driven to, to worship. And then once you, you do that, you look back on it, you begin to trust and that trust brings you right back. Just like we read in Hebrews chapter 6, or 11, verse 6, is that, you know, it's about God. We can't please God without faith. And that faith comes from understanding that he is our rewarder. He is our promise. And so practice that, that, that cycle. Connection, action, worship, trust. So if you will, stand with me, and we'll close in prayer. Dear Lord in heaven, thank you so much for this morning. Lord, we thank you for this time in your word. Lord, we thank you for um, this story of, of Abram, Lord, for the reminder of, uh, Lord, the promise that you've made us, Lord, and how steadfast you are with your promise, Lord, that uh, we can act on, on that in faith, Lord, and that uh, we can trust in you, and in all of this, Lord, we're going to be drawn to worship of you, Lord. You deserve our worship. We thank you. Keep us strong this week. Direct our ways. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.